We believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of his moral government, that it is holy, just, and good, and that the inability which the the scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts arises entirely from our love of sin. To deliver them from which and to restore them through the mediator of unfeigned obedience to the holy law is one great end of the gospel and of the means of grace connected with the establishment of the visible church. All right. So let's unpack that line by line. There's a, there's a lot there. So the first line says, we believe that the law of God, all right, and so when we say law of God, what do we mean? What do we mean when we say the law of God? Moses and the Ten Commandments. There you go. The law of God. God's commands, right? And God's commands are what? Don't list them out for me. What are they? What are God's commands? Right. What does he What does he mean by that? Right. Obedience. Right. Living things, obediently. I'm sorry. Things he wants you to do. Things he wants wants us to do. Very good. Right. Things he don't want you don't want you to do. All right. Things to do and things not to do. That's right. So there's the the law of God, which is eternal and unchangeable. It does not change. Right. It's not changing. It's his rule of his moral. Government. Now, I added a few words here for for me and, and understanding. I put of his moral character, or of his moral government, and the expression of his of his character. And I put that there because we we've talked about uh, who God is, and we listed all. Remember, we spent uh, man, I can't even remember how many weeks we we went through all of the of God's attributes, and and we went through his communicable attributes, his incommunicable attributes. We talked about his holiness and his grace and his mercy and all the omnis and all of those things. And, and, and this is what we mean, that the law of God is, in a sense, the obedience, the do's and the don'ts, are all a summary of God's character. They're all a summary of, of who he is. Right? It's not some attribute or some law that... We give that he does not do himself. Right? They're an expression of who he is. When he tells us to be holy, it is because he is holy. Right? Very good. So, it is his unchangeable rule of his moral character, or I put character, moral government. Right? So, let's let's look at some passages uh, uh, tonight. Someone look up Romans 3. Romans 3. I like to call people out who have them. James, why don't you look at Romans three thirty one? You have a copy of it in front of you. You have a copy of this in front of you. No. no. Okay. So I'll tell you the verses three thirty one. Okay. Uh, Carson, Matthew five seventeen, and let's go. Um, uh, yeah, we'll do those two. Okay. So Romans chapter three. Thirty one, right? Verse thirty one. Go ahead and read that. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. All right. So talking about the law of God, the harmony of the law of God between law and, and faith, and, and we see we see Paul uh, saying that they are not at odds, but instead faith upholds the, the law. Uh, go up to verse 20 now, and let's look at verse 20 of chapter 3 in Romans. For by works of the law... 
No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So already we see here a purpose of the law. So what does the law do? It reveals the, ex- the expression of who God is and his character. character. But according to verse 20, what does the law do? What is the law doing? Read it again if you have to. That's right. It's, let, it's, it's making us know what sin is, right? Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And here's the, the two purposes of God, the, the expression of, of the character and nature of who God is, and then the, um, the expression or the knowledge of sin. And we're not justified by the law. It's not its purpose. The law is, was not given to justify. It, it, it can't do it. It's not its, it's not its purpose. It's not its intended purpose. It's, it's like, um, I'm going to use my wife as an example since she's not here. Uh, I remember when we first got married, we were, you know, we were, you know, living and doing all the stuff that life is. And I remember I asked, um, I saw her, she was fix, trying to fix something. And she was trying to uh, screw in a flathead screwdriver with a butter knife. And, and I went berserk. Because that is not the intended use of a butter knife. I have a flathead screwdriver that was made specifically for that purpose. It does not work, actually. does not work. Right? And so the intended purpose, and my terrible illustration there, because it totally drew us all off, the intended purpose of the law is to make us knowledgeable of our sin. It does not justify. It it was never intended to do so. It it, it can't. It's It's not what it does. Can't bear that weight. And so that's why we say, why we see here, when we talked about verse 31, faith. Faith. All right, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Great passage, right? Here's Jesus. Jesus speaking. He didn't come to abolish the law. He's not taking it out and throwing it away. I have not come to abolish the law, but he has come to do what? To fulfill them. So as we read in, in Romans 3, verse 31, the fulfillment of the law, faith. It's faith. And Christ, through Christ, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his atonement, has provided this such for us. Not to abolish all, but to fulfill it. That's why, as Christians, we don't take our Old Testaments and rip them out of our Bibles. We don't, we don't throw them away. We don't, it's because Christ did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. The law is useful to us. Because why? What were the two things again? The knowledge of sin. What was the first one? Faith. No. Knowledge. knowledge the, character of God. the character of God. It reveals to us who the char- what the character of God is. Right? And as Christians, that is huge. That is huge. Right? And and we've we've talked about how in, in sanctification in our previous points. That in sanctification now, the Spirit of God is working in us in our obedience to the law. Now we have been 
set free to, to, to be obedient to the law. Now we have, by the, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, we now can be obedient to the law. The law is no longer a, a burden to us. It's, it's a joy. It's a delight. All right, so that's point number one. <laughs> First one, there it is. What the law of God is. Now, I just, I just put law for, for the one word summary there. Second one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say attributes. Attributes. That it is, so it, the law, right? That it is holy, just, and that it's good. Holy, just, and good. So that's the law of God, holy, just, and good. What else would we say is holy, just, and good? God. There you go. <laughs> and why is that? And why is that? Because the law of God, not once again, I'm going to keep saying it and keep saying it until you guys just say it out loud. Every time I ask. Because it is the character of God. Because it is, that is who he is. Holy, just, and good. God's law is holy. It is just and it's good. It is not unfair, as we like to say. That's not fair. It's, ho it's holy, it's just, it's good. Let's go to Romans 7. Everybody go to Romans 7. Everybody go to Romans 7. We're going to walk through a couple verses in, in, in Romans 7, talking about the, 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 the moral character of the law here, holy, just, and good. Romans 7, we'll just go, go in order here. Verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. Right? Remember the knowledge of sin. For if I would have for if I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said you shall not covet. So we've already kind of covered that point about one of the purposes on reveal sin. It reveals our sinfulness. Go to verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and the right and righteous and good. Why? Because the, the law of God is a, an expression of the character and nature of God, and it's doing the work that God has designed it to do. Verse 22. Too far. Look at, wish we could spend the whole time and read chapter 7. I love Romans chapter 7. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Why can Paul delight in the law of God? Why? Why, why, can't, why can he say that it is the law that I delight in it? We also see several, We're gonna, if we have time, we're going to look at Psalm 119, where over and over in Psalm 119, uh, David expresses the same thing. I, I delight in your law. Why? Why would, why would Paul say this? It's the character of God. Very good. And then the second thing? Because it what? Makes it knowledgeable of the sin. sin. And when it does those two things, what did, it, what did it cause for Paul? Same thing it would cause in every one of us. He saw his need for grace. 
He saw his need for grace. For I delight in the law in my inner being. I delight in it. Galatians chapter 3. We'll read this one quickly. You don't have to change there if you don't want to turn there. Verse 21. Galatians spends a lot of time talking about the law. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Another exclamation point. Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What does he mean there? What does he mean by that? There you go. Good job. Amen. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. All right, let's see. I really want to get through the second point. So let's. you can go through Psalm 119. It's awesome. And I got some verses if you want to write them down. Psalm 119, verse 1, verse 18, verse 29, verse 34, verse 44, verse 72. And actually, there is a whole host of, of more verses that he that he goes through talking about the law, but uh, it, it, it's just kind of, they're all kind of almost the same. And, and just over and over, just delighting in, 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 in God's law. And it's not a burden, it's a joy. So Psalm 119 just goes through it, and, and because it is holy, it is just, and it's good. It is good for us to know God's, love, God's law so that we can be knowledgeable of our sin, and we can be obedient to that, and we can also uh, um, and glorify God. All right, so there's point two, that it is holy, just, and good. Point three, and that the inability which the scriptures ascribe to fallen men to fulfill its precepts and rise, arises entirely from their love of sin. Now, we've dealt with this idea in the fallenness of man, of man's inability of themselves to what? fulfill the law of God. We're unable to fulfill the precepts of the law because of our, what does it say? What does it say? Because of our love of sin. Because of our love of sin. And this is a very important part to understand when it comes to the law. Right? Very important part. So we got those verses once again. Romans 8, we've read it several times. Romans 8, 7, and uh, 8. Um, remember correctly, it's, it's talking about those who live by the flesh will die by the flesh, but those who live in the, in the Spirit are alive in Christ, and those who, who, are, uh, who are obedient. Um, Joshua 24, I'm going to turn there with me if you want. Uh, this is a good one. You say Joshua 20? 24. 24. Verse 19. Bill, would you get ready with Jeremiah 13:23? Don't check out on me now. <laughs> Joshua 24, verse 19. This, this is, just set the context real quick. This is when Joshua has led the people to the promised land. He's getting old. He's about to check out himself. And, and they're about to turn it over to new leadership. And, and, and Joshua stands up before the people. 
He preaches to them saying, who are you going to choose? Are you going to follow the Lord? Or are you going to do what you want to do? Are you going to do what the, what, what the people in this land are doing? Are you going to follow them or are you going to follow God? Choose you this day who you are going to serve. And, and, and unanimously the people resound, we choose to follow the God. We will serve the Lord our God. In fact, in verse 18 it says, it says that we will follow the Lord our God. And look at jo- look what Joshua says in verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm to consume you after having done you good. What is he saying there in verse 19? What is he saying? You you make the commitment. You you will make the commitment, but what what what's going to happen? You're not able. You're not able. The insight. There's insight here that's pointing to the the need of all mankind that we cannot please God on our own. Not even Israel at their best. This is Israel at their best right here. They can't. And yet here's the reality. So the law, inability of mankind to do these things. Jeremiah 13. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Did y'all hear that? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Or what's that again? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. That's right. Can you do good for those who are accustomed to do evil? Now he's talking about Israel once again. So here's Israel at its worst. This is the inability of man to work themselves into righteousness. We need grace. We need the gospel. And, and that's where the law reveals our need for the gospel. The law reveals our need for, for the gospel. So let's look at the last point. Point four. To deliver them and to restore them, rescue and regeneration. We talked about regeneration previously. Restore them through a mediator. Who's the mediator? Jesus. To unfeigned obedience to the holy law. So let's just kind of stop right there. This is what the gospel reveals our need for the gospel as that we need a rescuer. A rescuer to restore us, to bring about regeneration. And it only comes through a mediator, through Christ. And then that mediator through Christ, that restoration then moves us to, brings us to the ability now to be obedient. For, for obedience. And it's obedience to what? To the, to the holy law. To the holy law. I'm reading the point, actually. Sorry. I was reading point 12 there. Line four. 
<laughs> Sorry. Go to, let's read Romans. Let's read Romans. Romans 8. I'm going to go quickly through this because I want us to really get into verse thir- or point 13. I'm going to go to Romans 3. Look at verse 2. Mm-hmm. I, I guess you can't really read verse, start in verse 2 in chapter 8. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Anyone tell me what the law or the, the law of spirit of life is? What's the law of the spirit of life? Anybody want to take a guess? The gospel. The law of the spirit of life is 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 the gospel message. And that's the message that has set us free in Christ from the law of sin. Right? The, the sin that, that has condemned us all. Right? Sin and death. And the curse of sin is death. Verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I mean, this is what he did through his Son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We could spend a long time unpacking that. But what we see here, ultimately here, is the, what the work of Christ, what God has done through the work of Christ into fulfilling the law. It's going back to what we started with from Matthew chapter 5. They fulfilled, he fulfilled the law. And so now, once again, so that we may not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that we may be obedient to that to that law, to the holy law. I got a question about what Jesus read. Okay. Something I was I always was wondering. When Jesus when Jesus was born, right? Mm-hmm. Before, before God gave him to um to die for our sin, he was actually human like we was. Yes. Born just like you were born. And whenever um and me, and whenever he died, died on the cross and was put in the tomb, he became a spirit, right? Not until he ascended. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was really wondering that. Yep. Yep. Okay. When he was resurrected, he came out out of the tomb. From death back to life, just as human as you and I, breathing, eating, with a new resurrected body. Okay. Yep. I was always wondering that. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Good question. All right. So there's Romans eight. I don't think I even read the rest of the point. I apologize. Obedience to the holy law is the one great end of the gospel. In the means of grace connected with the establishment 
of the visible church. What is the visible church? Ooh. Partially. Yeah, yeah. It's the church you can see. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you're absolutely right. right? So, yeah, you got it. It's uh, it's the body. It's the people, right? It's the people that make up the church. It's the the the, the body of of believers. The 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 church. And so what we see here. And in, in this this point is is what the gospel is doing. The great end of the gospel is to bring about obedience, and then the means of grace establishment are the connected with the establishment of the visible church. And there's a bunch of verses there that that talk about that. We're going to have to uh, skip those because I really want us to get into point thirteen tonight because it's going to talk about that of the gospel church, the church us. We have been created by the gospel. We're gospel people. Right? We have to be. Our website says gospel-centered. Whether you read it or not, it's there. We have to be. You're committed now. And it's in this point So, of a, of a gospel church. Let's see here. Um, what? Uh, inability in gospel. Point 13 of a gospel church. Brother Richard, would you read that one nice and loud? Of a gospel church. We believe that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers associated by a covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel, observing the ordinances of Christ, governed by his laws, and exercising the gifts, rights, and privileges invested in them by his word, that, it only, that its only scriptural officers are bishops or pastors and deacons whose qualifications, claims, and duties are defined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. All right. Very good. So we believe that the visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers. So the visible church is the church that you see. What is the invisible church? Mary. There you go. The elect. There you go. The invisible church is the elect. The visible church is the congregation, right? The people. All right. So here's a, the, the definition of a gospel church right here. We believe that the visible church of Christ is the congregation of baptized believers. Uh, and that's really important of, of what we mean by, by, by baptized believers. And we'll see there in the second line. I'm sorry, the third line that it's talking about the ordinances, which we'll get to in point 14 of baptism and 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 the Lord's Supper. Well, so let's look at that. Uh, let's look at that uh, together. Um, let's look at First Corinthians, and, and and basically what we're going to see in these in these verses isn't necessarily going to say this is the church and give us a definition. That's the purpose of a statement of faith or or kind of a systematic theology. Uh, but but what we're going to see here is over and over again, all, every single one of these verses talk about the church, the establishment of a of a church, not just something that is just the invisible church, but a a visible church that was in a real place at a real time with real people, like us, just like us. So First Corinthians, chapter one. Look at verse ten. We would think that going to 1 Corinthians wouldn't be the very best place to talk about a defense for the church. 
as First Corinthians talks a lot about a, a really dysfunctional church, but yet still they're a church. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So what is he saying in this? What is he talking about? He's talking about the church. He's talking about this, this group of people that were divided in a sense, because they're saying, I'm following this guy, I'm, I'm following this guy, and they're quarreling of who's, who's better because you follow this person or you follow uh, um, uh, that person. And, of course, he's going to go and address this division. What he's talking about here, he's talking about in the beginning, that there's supposed to be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind, in the same judgment, because you're the church. You're the church in, in Corinth. You're the church, a congregation of believers in Christ, not of different people and divided, but in, but in Christ, but in Christ. And so we see those in, in, in all these different passages in Matthew 18, Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we, can, we can turn there real quick since we're already in 1 Corinthians. He says this, he says, that is why I sent you, sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So it's not just one big massive group of people around the world, it is a visible local congregation. Visible local congregation. Church. That's what I got from my first, just first line there. Baptized believers, we'll, we'll address that in point 14, but the, but the church is made up of, of believers. Right, we want to take that necessarily for granted, but that is probably the most, one of the most important marks of a healthy church is that those who are its members are believers and baptized believers. Associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. So associated or united in a covenant of faith. What do we mean? What do you think they mean by or is meant by a covenant of faith? <coughs> what is the covenant of faith? What do we mean by that covenant in the faith? Okay. Okay. So we're united in the in our in our faith in Christ. Okay. Why would it say covenant? Because we all agree. Because we all agree. That's right. And when we all agree, 
in our faith in Christ, when we come in covenant together, what are we doing together? We are what? Agreeing. We're committing. It's a commitment. We're committing to one another. In our agreement, we are committing to to one another. In fellowship of the gospel. So our our fellowship, our covenant is in our agreement or of our faith, and our fellowship is in the gospel or is of the gospel. So that's our message. And we talked about that in our when we were reading uh, of church membership. Boy, we we what we believe is what unites us. That what we what we believe in Christ and has been revealed in the Scripture is what unites us. And there's nothing else, right? I mean, yeah, we have we have different things that we have in common. We might come from the same places. We might have been the same places. We may like the same things. We may have the same skin color. But what unites us ultimately under everything else, even if we were completely different in every other way, what unites us is the gospel. And therefore, I can fellowship with you. And I can commit to you. I put here church membership as the as the point line there. Look at Acts chapter Acts chapter two. Doing good on time here. Acts chapter two. Verse forty one. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. What were they added to? The church. Right? The church. This is, and this is the new church. This is the very first one. So 3,000 souls were, were added to the, the number of probably around 120 that day. Talking about exponential growth. Big, major problem. That's what I would say. I would be like, this is crazy. I don't know what to do. How do I disciple 3,000 people at one time? 3,000 people added to. What were they added to? They were added to the church. Why would they put a number there? Because they counted them. They, they counted them. They knew who was committing. They knew who was agreeing. They knew who was fellowshipping in the gospel. And they were added it in. That's right. They were added on. Call it a roll. Call it membership. Whether it needs to be formal or informal, I think depends on the culture. But this definitely shows that they were added to something, membership. So a gospel church has membership. Keep reading verse 42. Listen to this, and look at the, here's the fellowship, fellowship of the gospel. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's the 3,120 of them. To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. What was the fellowship? The church. They, they devoted themselves to it. They devoted, they, they gave themselves, they covenanted. They gave themselves to to this, to the to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Is that talking about having meals together, or, or could it be also maybe the Lord's Supper? I think both. They're breaking of bread together and the Lord's Supper. 
and what else? And prayer. Here's what the here how here's what the church exists. This is what we do. We want to we want to boil it down to simplicity. Here it is, right here. The the devoting ourselves to the teaching of the word and the fellowship to one another and the breaking of bread, fellowshipping together, and of praying together. Very good. Look at verse. Skip down to verse forty-seven. You can see what what it is. Praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord. And and, and so I think when, uh, um, and, and not to continually harp on something we've been really dealing with for a long, for over a year now, is I think when we, when you have biblical, gospel centered, meaningful church membership, the church will grow. We will grow. In maturity, and we will grow in number. Why? Was it because they did stuff, or was it because God added to their number daily? Yeah. That's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. Very good. That's encouraging. Very encouraging. All right, so there's, there's, point, uh, there's point two. Covenant of faith and fellowship of the gospel. Observing of the ordinances of Christ. We're going to cover that in in, in point four, uh, the ordinances there, and, and we'll, we'll cover that in the next point. So just kind of hold on to that uh, until, until next week. And governed by his laws. So who? Whose laws? Christ. Christ. Specific Christ, because that's what's in the text, right? Or it says visible church of Christ. Because Christ is our head. If we were the body, then He is our He is our head. So we have we have we have one head, and that's Christ. We have one shepherd, that's that's Christ. We have under shepherds, absolutely, but we have one head. Christ alone. Not only as our salvation, but also our but also as our as our head. And so the church we are we are governed, we are governed by his 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 laws. Look at Matthew twenty eight. Matthew twenty eight. Somebody read nice and loud. Nineteen and twenty. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To Right. We think that this is just for motivating missions giving or going on a mission trip. And here's the here is the command of Jesus to the church before he ascended. This is what he commanded. This is what he commanded. Authority in heaven has been given to me, verse 18. Go. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and that He's with us. There's the encouragement there. This is the mission and the purpose of the church is to make disciples. And we make disciples by going and baptizing and teaching them to be obedient. Right? So we can we can kind of go back, peel it back to Acts chapter two. What were they doing? What were they they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? Which was the teaching of Christ. 
They were devoting themselves there. They were baptizing them. Can you imagine that baptism service, how nasty the waters must have been after the third 3,000 person? This is how my mind thinks. I'm sorry. Right? You've been the last one. Right? Still joyfully just jump right in. That's right. If they were in the Jordan, then it was just flowing, so never mind. Right? Uh, so they were... They were baptizing, and, and this is the command. This is this is this is the command of of, of the, the the governed by his laws is to 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 go make disciples and, and baptize and teaching them uh, teaching to be uh, to, to be obedient. Uh, what we do in our in our in our membership, I, I just we can sit here and talk once again over and over. What we do and how we do membership is being obedient to these passages. Disciple, discipline. To discipline one another into maturity, into Christ-likeness. We do it through teaching. We do it through formal church discipline. Why? Because it makes us more like Christ. We go, we baptize, and we teach to be, to be obedient. John 14. John 14. Let me read that real quickly. Because this is part of the, I think, the, the governed by his law. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Or governed by his law. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's pretty straight, pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. If you love me, you'll, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. Go down to John 15. John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So the commandment, follow his commands, and then love one another. Here's governed by his law. Here it is. Go, make disciples teaching, discipline, Biblical church membership with one another. Be obedient and love one another. We're not strangers to texts like this. We've we've covered it several times over and over in, in our in our walk through Ephesians and the unpacking of Ephesians to, to love one another. And love one another. And it just keeps going. John 14. Uh, the, the, the Second John, and all these passages that, that continue to, to show what it means to, to be governed by this law. And here's the next thing, right? As a church, gospel church also exercises the gifts and the rights. This is the next point. Exercises the gifts, the rights, and the privileges invested in them by his word. So it is the, the word of God now that, that guides us. It's the word of God that 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 guides us. We read this, and I'm, I'm going really fast. I you know I usually get y'all more involved, but I really want to get to this point. Ephesians four, verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high. He led the captives, hosted the captives, and gave gifts to men. And saying this, he descended. Verse uh, verse 10, he descended, is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. Verse 11, 
And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we obtain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the deceitful craftiness of deceitful schemes. The exercising of our gifts and privileges that have been given to us through God and Christ, through the Word of God, so that we may obtain maturity. We may obtain, obtain the stature of the fullness of Christ, Christ's likeness. So we'll no longer, as it says, we'll no longer be children tossed to and fro. No longer carried by every wind of doctrine. Oh, sad. That is a sad sight to watch Christians just float along like that. Ebb and flow. Christians that have been Christians for 25 years. Tossed to and fro by whatever sounds good. Whatever tickles the ear, to be honest with you. Whatever tickles the ear, whatever it sounds good. If it sounds good, it must be right. No. We're to be obtaining maturity. Maturing in Christ. Maturity. So we'll no longer be by these, these things. Be tossed to and fro. This is what this is the body of Christ. This is what we this is what we do, and it's by the by the scripture, by the by the word of God. I, I think I said it a, 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 a two weeks ago that it is the word of God that has created us. It is the word of God that has created us, and it is the word of God that that shapes us as a people, as a church, and nothing else. And here's why. And here's why. Next point. That it's only scriptural officers are bishops. I put elders. Just updated some language here for y'all. Elders or pastors. Right? Just describing the two um, kind of the job descriptions of this one particular office. We're not talking about three offices here. We're talking about one office, bishops or pastors. And then there's the the deacons. We haven't talked much about deacons, have we? We haven't talked. Talk, what what is a deacon? A servant. Very good. I like that. Diakonos, a servant. Right. That's it. A servant. It's one who, one who serves, and in particularly this particular office is one that 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 serves the church. It's the one that that serves the church, and the ones that that are already serving the church in a sense, you are to take them and set them apart. It's not you, it's not you call them a deacon and then hope they start serving. It's a bad idea. So these are the offices described in the church, elders, pastors, and, and deacons. Um, pastors is describing the, the shepherding, right? the leading, of and, and the care of of that of that uh, office, as well as elder or bishop or overseer, describing the the the, the leadership and uh, of of the of the body. Uh, there's pas- uh, verses or passages there from Acts 14, talking about the the elders in 15. Uh, you see there First Timothy chapter 3 and uh, Titus 1 and its leaders, and then. 
Uh, I put I actually put a number uh, uh, a seven behind this next one after six. It says those who with qualifications from First and Second uh, Timothy, and we went through those qualifications uh, back in last last November, right, right around this time. We walked through five weeks of talking about the, the what is an elder, what's the role of an elder, what are the, what do they do. Uh, why have elders, and what are the qualifications to, 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 to being an elder? And, and these are the passages that, that, that line that out, and, and not just the elders, but also lines out for the deacons as well. Um, and, and what is the difference in the qualification side between the, um, uh, between the, the elder and the, the deacon? What are the qualification? What's the qualification difference? There's one main one. Okay. Okay. You you got it right. I would prefer you say it the other way, meaning the elders are the ones who who teach. Yeah, prefer to say it though. They're the ones who are who are called to teach, but necessarily the the deacons are not, um, and because they're they're the leading. But the the quality of of the man is are are the same, right? Uh, are are the same. The qualifications are there as well as the roles. And responsibilities. I got some more passages. If y'all would write the, write these down, we're coming up on our, our time limit here. Um, there's First Timothy chapter three. It says, you know, the thing says Epistle to Timothy and Titus, but it's First Timothy chapter three, one through seven, and eight through thirteen. Uh, Titus chapter one, five through nine, and and then I also added First Timothy chapter five, one through five. I think does a really good job of discover, des- describing the shepherd and the overseeing role of the elder. First Peter chapter five one through five, yeah Titus one five through nine, and and then Acts chapter twenty does a really good job in describing uh, uh, the role of the of the elder, and and the, the uh, more of a, a job description of, of the elder leading and shepherding uh, the church as as Paul admonishes the the elders of Ephesus. And uh, that's Acts twenty eighteen through thirty five.